With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It takes courage to race a car on the limit. And it takes courage to admit your limitations. Formula One drivers don't usually do the latter. It's no secret it's been quite challenging for me and us as a team as well. Those who perform at the pinnacle of motorsport don't often describe why they can't keep up with their closest rivals, their teammates. He's able to take a far more unstable car than I can, and that's to his credit. I mean, he just has a much better feel of what the car is doing when it's over the limits. I was just never able to get that feeling with the Williams car. It's as simple as that. This is Nicholas Latifi, preparing to leave Formula One for the time being at least, and he's ready to open up. I definitely don't think I'm going to feel bitter about it. And I don't feel bitter about it. That's the reality. At the end of the day, it's a performance-based industry and I just didn't get enough consistent performances. Some in my control, some things out of my control, but that's motorsport. That's the same for everybody. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. In this high-pressure, win-or-nothing sport, it takes bravery to be as honest as Nicholas Latifi as he reflects on three tough seasons and the fact that he won't be on the grid in 2023. Some of his struggles, he says, were caused by the Williams cars, and he explains in intricate detail why he's found them so difficult to drive. But he gives credit to his team for supporting him and to his teammates George Russell and Alex Albon for outperforming him. He's also full of praise for Nick de Vries when he talks about their one weekend as Williams colleagues. That race at Monza saw de Vries seal a place in Formula One for 2023, and it may have spelled the end for Latifi. As thoughts turn to Abu Dhabi in his final Grand Prix for now, he remembers his blameless part in the 2021 title finale and what happened afterwards. What happens next? Well, Nicky's honest about his prospects. He won races in Formula 2, but could only show glimpses of his talent in Formula 1. Listening to him, you get the sense that this courageous competitor can find his way back to the top of a podium one day. I hope he does, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nicky, great to see you. Thank you for your time, as ever. So... Just two races of the season to go. How are you approaching them? Yeah, the season's gone by uh, very, very quickly. And um, yeah, especially since since uh, hearing the news that I won't be uh, continuing along next year, for sure, just been, you know, wanting to finish off all the races before the end of the season on as, on as high a note as possible. And yeah, with two races left, it's, uh, yeah, feels like it's very quickly uh, flying by this last part of the season. And uh Looking ahead to Brazil and Abu Dhabi, I guess, yeah, the, those goals don't change. It's just wanting to end, um, let's say, my my chapter in, in Formula One and as well this chapter with Williams, who I've been with for three years, on the, the best note possible. Is it getting emotional? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's getting emotional at the moment. I'm sure probably um, in Abu Dhabi I'll kind of have the... Maybe not the realization, because I've already come to the realization that, you know, I'm obviously you know not going to be continuing on with the team anymore and uh, and... 
I mean, most likely <laughs> not in Formula One anymore. But at the moment, no, I'm just kind of, you know, still taking it race by race. I mean, for sure, there was some, you know, the disappointment, sadness, frustration, obviously just kind of with how the season has gone. And, uh, you know, the news wasn't really a surprise to me in that sense, but it didn't really make it any, let's say, nicer to hear. But yeah, I mean, I would expect come Abu Dhabi and probably once the checkered flag in Abu Dhabi drops, yeah, they'll for sure probably be a bit more of a, not going to say flooding of, of emotions. I mean, maybe there will be, but uh, just the kind of like, okay, it's this chapter is closed now onto, onto what's next. And do you feel like you're, you're living each F1 experience even more intensely than normal? You know, every time you get into the car now, you're just trying to relish every, every minute. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely been trying to have more of, of, of that approach in the past few races. Although it's not been obviously the easiest position to be in, uh, you know, this year with the performance of the car and even, you know, the, the, the previous two years, you know, fighting around, say, towards the tail end of the field, not, not exactly where we want to be fighting, both me personally, but even as a team. It, it's still, you know, I think important to take that step back every now and then and kind of gain a bit of perspective on, yeah, I'm not necessarily fighting what I hoped to, to be fighting for. And again, that goes for the team as well. But you know, I did still arrive in Formula One. I did still achieve, let's say, one of my big goals. Clearly, I didn't achieve all of my big goals. And, uh, you know, I got to live live a few years of a life that I know many, many drivers would, would kill to be in in that position. So for sure, when I step back on that, I'm I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and I know the, how privileged of a position I have been in to be in that position. But yeah, now coming to the end, as I said, it's just, you know, trying to, you know, reflect on that a little bit more. And if that helps me to, you know, not sweat the small stuff as as much. Uh, and when I say not sweat the small stuff, there's there's a lot of big stuff to sweat in, in Formula One, especially for for uh, for our position. And just try not to let you know probably things that would have bugged me a little bit more, or frustrated me a little bit more. Just like well, you know what, you know, in some ways it doesn't really matter anymore. And, and not to say that it's the effort and the motivation is not there, because for sure I want to end on a highest note as possible, but. I know I'm not continuing on anymore, so so I'm not having any extra anger or frustration when I, a result doesn't go as well as I had hoped it to be. Because in the end, whether I win a race in the next two races or finish out of the points and towards the back in the next two races, it's not really going to change anything for for my F1 career. Has your attitude towards Formula One and maybe the sport in general changed since the announcement that you're not continuing with Williams? That's a good question. I think. Since the announcement itself, no, but I, I mean, I could be honest and say there's probably been a, a little shift in feelings towards everything just with, with how the past years have gone. I mean, it's, it's no secret. It's been quite, quite challenging for me and again, us as a team as well, you know, not fighting for the positions we want to be. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a competitor. I'm a very competitive person in anything I do and, and it's not nice to obviously be you know, showing up uh, each weekend as it is for all the other team members, all the mechanics, all the engineers, uh, you know, the hospitality marketing members, you know, everyone is showing up and you know, unless a lot of things fall your way, even if you operate at 200% and, and nail everything out of the park, you're still not guaranteed to get a, a result that's, uh, let's say, befitting of that effort that you know is being being put in. And obviously that's part of the reality of, of F1 and there's a lot of work that I think still needs to go down back at the, the factory to, you know, provide a more competitive package to, to the race team. And again, race team is not perfect. I'm not perfect. There's still a lot of areas to improve for sure. But, uh, you know, when you are going in at such a disadvantage, it's very easy to look like you're not doing a good job when in reality you can be doing a, a phenomenal job and maybe even, 
you know, relatively speaking, you, you could be doing a better job than some of the teams finishing in the points, finishing on the podium, finishing on, you know, winning the races, but just because they have that competitive advantage of a, of a quicker car, it's, you know, whether they rim, you know, maybe they had the potential to win the race by 60 seconds and they only won it by 20 seconds. Like you don't know it just because they, they've won the race. Uh, it's like, Oh, they've, they've maximized. So, uh, that's, you know, the situation that we're in and, um, for sure, it's not always the most motivating. Uh, you know, you you have to try and f like dig in inwardly to to find that motivation to you know still show up and give that maximum effort, even when you know you're not fighting for those positions. Nikki, you've won races in Formula Two. You finished second in the championship in 2019. I'm quite interested in in this whole getting used to not winning in Formula One. I mean, how quickly did the shine of just being in Formula One wear off? I mean, let's, let's say when I signed to be a Formula One driver back in at the end of 2019, I knew firstly what the reality of you know F1 was. I mean, I was very aware of the reality of what F1 could be. Like you know, way before I was in F1, you know, the disparity between the cars and and whatnot, and for sure, you know, joining Williams, which at the time had probably the most difficult year in in history. Uh, uh, obviously, with a not the most competitive car. Obviously, it was George and Robert at the time driving, and they you know there was. I was the reserve driver at the time, so I, I was aware of the, the big struggles there. But uh, I still knew I was achieving my, my dream, let's say, of becoming a Formula One driver. And uh, I, I wouldn't say the, the allure of that was kind of overriding everything because, to be honest, I, I never wanted to be in Formula One just, you know, to be driving around in the show and, uh, you know, try and gain some popularity and, and, and fame, if you will. I mean... Enjoying Formula, I wanted to get to Formula One just because you know I obviously enjoyed racing Formula cars, enjoyed the competitive aspect of it. These were, this was the pinnacle for me. Motorsport still is the pinnacle of, of motorsport, and I wanted to compete with the with the best. But then, yeah, that, for, for sure, once you kind of get used to the Formula One life, which I would say that the the first year was very different because of COVID and, and everything. So maybe it wasn't the the full experience of as you said the allure of, of F1. But then going into the second year, once you know. COVID started to wear off, if you will, and the, the fans started coming back in. And it's, I started to, let's say, experience a bit more what being a Formula One driver was like, let's say, for, for the good and, and, and for the, let's say, not so good good aspects. And for sure, then coming into this year as, as a third year, let's say, driving in a, ultimately in a package that wasn't as competitive as, as we had all hoped, you know, at some point, it does start to become a little more frustrating, for sure. I mean, I would have loved to have stayed with the team long term. Uh, you know, I made you know I've made that clear before. I would have been happy to stay with Williams and continue and try, and and build with them. And obviously, coming into this year, there was that big hope that you know there was going to be a step. You know, the rules and regulations were going to provide a reset, and it was going to be a little bit better. In the end, unfortunately, it seemed like we took a step back this year, and a lot of our direct competitors took a big step forward. So it was definitely. Uh, well, let's say maybe a bit of a shock because we didn't didn't expect that. We knew we were going to be stuck with this kind of for for most of the year once we kind of really understood the limitations we had and what was going to be possible for for upgrades and whatnot. I mean, in the end, we only brought one big upgrade all year. There was little things here and there, but I wouldn't really consider them upgrades. And that you know was kind of it, all the focus put on on uh, on next year. At, at some point, it's uh, again maybe demotivating de is a strong word, but. You know, I, I was obviously really struggling a lot with the car, and I, and I still am struggling with the car. Obviously, yeah, 
Alex has had the same struggles, but he's been much more comfortable with the car. It's not that he thinks the car is the the, the best thing he's driven either. Uh, you know, even with the cars last year, George, and I think it's fair to say he always felt, you know, a little bit more comfortable driving those. And, um, you know, when things fell a bit more my way and I, and I had the confidence I needed, you know, I could be as quick as either of them, let's say, uh, the respective things, but they were just able to extract that performance more, more consistently. And you can say arguably that maybe, you know, it exposed a, a, weak, a weakness of mine, a weak spot of mine. In, in a way, maybe similar to, I mean, I was reading an interview from Ricciardo the other, the other week, and he was obviously being quite open about his struggles and relative to, to Lando, and, you know, every driver will have a, a specific feeling they like to get from the car to drive fast. What are you not getting from the FW44 that you need? I mean, to, to be honest, it's not just from this car. It's even with, you know, it's with all th three cars I've, I've driven. This one was definitely the biggest step backwards for me and what, what I needed. It's my driving style. I've always tended to attack the corners under braking and I kind of create my own, uh, I create my own front end because of that, because I'm, I like to trail brake into the corner. So people who don't know what that means, it means I like to carry the brakes to the apex of the corner and I really brake late most of the time at the expense of maybe some minimum or exit speed, but I always try and find that right compromise. So because I create my own front end, I, I often need a stable car on the entries of the corner, whereas the Williams has never been stable on, on entry. And uh, then to top it off to make it even worse, our, our car is very weak at, uh, let's say, combining steering and braking, which everyone up and down the paddock will do because you always combine a bit of steering and braking. But for our car, as soon as you start to do that, it's, it's almost instantaneous how quickly you lock up the, the front wheels. And again, there's only a few drivers who, who have driven the Williams cars in the past three years that could say just how off-putting that is. You know, there's obviously George, Robert, the, Alex, obviously, and you know, the drivers who have stepped in for FP1s and, and, and whatnot. And the thing is, you don't even have to have driven another Formula One car to compare because it's just you know, what feels natural for a racing car. When you look at the data of someone like Alex Albon in this year's car... What's he doing differently? He's able to take a far more unstable car than, than, than I can. And that's to his credit. I mean, he's, he just has a much better feel of what the car is doing when, it, when it's over the limit. Uh, and, he's, and he's happy to play with it on that limit. And he's happy to go, go over the limit much more and much bigger snaps to the point where it's like, well, if, if I'm feeling the way I feel with the car, that unpredictability, if I did that, well, I'd probably be, <laughs> be off the track. And again, that's credit to him. So... And I, and I do feel in a way George was similar. It's just the car was slightly more together in the previous two years, which is why I was obviously relatively closer to George than I was, than I was to, to Alex. But so again, arguably you could say my window uh, of let's say where I like the car to be is maybe not as broad as you know what a guy like Alex or a guy like George can take. I was just never able to get that feeling with the Williams car. It's as simple as that. And when you were successful in Formula 2, you were able to drive those cars like that? Uh, yes, there was, I mean, it's not to say that I always had a car in Formula 2 that was perfect, because I, no one will, will ever say that the car's never perfect, but you know, for sure, much more in, in, the, in line of at least feeling comfortable and confident and being able to predict what the car's going to do, because that was another aspect. It wasn't just struggling with what the car was doing and it not being to my liking. It was then also the predictability of it, which then added even a, an extra element. So uh, it, it wasn't in line with, and has not been in line with what I instinctively like from a car to go quick which again you could say is just in a smaller range um, but then being able to predict it and, and getting caught off guard with okay I'm positive it's going to understeer here and then no big snap of oversteer or vice versa I'm you know the car's going to over rotate here and then I get a big front lock all of a sudden 
uh, and it could just vary so much from, you know, often I've been cut out so much in qualifying with, you know, every single lap in practice, it does one thing in one corner, and whether it's front locking, front locking, front locking, come to my, the lap that matters in qualifying, and I get rear locked like someone pulls the handbrake. It's like, well, <laughs> where did that come from? Or again, it could be just understeer, 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 and then bam, big, big snap of overseer on the lap that matters. And it, it, that's just the, the knife edge and that fine line that, you know, arguably all the drivers have to deal with. But it is an extremely peaky car, and that's also created, you know, these wind sensitivity issues and, and, and whatnot that we speak about. So it is a very difficult car to not make mistakes in, you know, obviously even harder when the track conditions, wind and whatnot play a, play a part. I'm interested that you mentioned Daniel Ricciardo's problems this year, because do you think there are parallels to be made between the two of you and in, and in the way that the McLaren management talk about how they exhausted every possibility with him in terms of improving his performance, that's when they decided to pull the plug. And was it a similar experience for you at Williams? Do you feel that you had good dialogue with the management and you tried everything to try and improve the car? And as a result, when the news came between Monza and Singapore, ultimately both sides were expecting it. Is that what happened? Yeah, so I mean, I would say when it was clear very early on about the struggles that I was having with the car this year, I mean, yeah, we, we obviously did a lot of work behind the scenes, you know, first at the factory, on the simulator, uh, speaking with the engineers, and obviously, which is the best opportunity to train, being at the track driving, uh, to try and, you know, improve this feeling. But yeah, it never really amounted to, um, yeah, what, what I had hoped, but it wasn't for a lack of effort, it wasn't for a lack of, of trying, I just was never able to get that feeling. And yeah, I, I know I did have the, the support of the team for sure. You know, the inherent issues that were giving me problems with, you know, the balance and not suiting my driving style, there w there's not really much we, we would have been able to do to change that. So you're just always trying to find the best compromise to live with. Okay, does this make this a little bit better? It's, it's going to make something worse for sure, because that's the thing, it's always a compromise. I don't think you're the only driver suffering from this. When you look at the, the problems Mercedes have had this year, and I think pretty much every team apart from Red Bull seems to have had issues with the new cars. I wonder whether it's similar issues to you. Yeah, I mean, for, for sure this year, the the new philosophy of cars and the new regulations in general, it's created a lot for teams to get on top of, a lot to learn, and obviously to learn at a very quick rate. Arguably, I think, you know, solving the balance of the car in a, in, in a lot of situations this year would have amounted to much stronger results and potentially a few more points every, every now and then just because this... There's lap time in that just as much as there is on finding outright downforce. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Let's look at 
the last three years as a whole now. When did we see the best version of Nicholas Latifi? I would probably say towards the, the second half of last year um, was probably when I felt the most, let's say, comfortable with the car. Uh, and I felt I was yeah, the most at home with it and, and kind of stringing together consistently strong performances. I think on paper and like outwardly on TV, they were never really as strong as I think they actually seemed because there was you know, quite a few occasions where I think what, such has been the, the reality of the past three years where you know, arguably qualifying has been the weaker part of mine and I've relatively felt a bit more comfortable in the race scenarios. Obviously George, an amazing qualifier. Alex as well, I rate an extremely great qualifier as well. The situation we are in often as, as a team is when we are getting good results is, is not because we are fast and making our way through the field. It's because we're in a, we find ourselves in a good position. So whether it's a, let's say, overachieving qualifying, a good strategy call, maybe benefiting from some misfortune, and then kind of just holding on to, to that position. Uh, but naturally, if I'm starting a few positions back, again, uh, like I said, we, we struggle to move forward because the, the car it, it just doesn't have the capability always to, to do that. But it can hold on to a position if you do find yourself in a good so position. So I'm thinking Hungary. Hungary. 2021, you finished seventh and just clinging on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we held on. I mean, obviously Suzuka this year, I think it was the same for, for Nick and Monza. Obviously did an amazing race, held on many races with Alex this year, obviously. Australia and any race that we've gotten points or been close to points, it's 90% of the time it's, it's, it's just hanging on. We're not moving through the field. That second half of the year, although maybe the, of 2021, 20, uh, although the results maybe on paper were not great, I mean, there was a lot of qualifyings where there was just a lot of really bad luck. And, and, in, and in reality, I, which again, I could say this uh, confidently, uh, no, obviously that the qualifying record against George was, you know, massively in his favor, but I would have been ahead of him on quite a few more occasions than I actually showed from it. Sometimes there was some engine problems, some issues with, with traffic and just being kind of in the, in the wrong place on track, but like things that were kind of in a way, some in our control, some out of our control, but let's say not directly in my uh, control but when and when you looked at the data afterwards like okay well you know this didn't go our way that you know with how close it was i would have been ahead or at least i would have progressed into q2 because often it was only you know within sometimes tenth and a half two tenths less than a tenth to george and it would be the difference between him getting through the q2 and then he would build on that and then get get an amazing qualifying whereas just then i'm knocked out of q1 and then obviously, you know, you, you don't have the, 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 the chance to continue along. So I would say that was, you know, when I was feeling the most comfortable and confident with the car. And then even in the, even in the race, obviously, although we might be starting on different parts of the track, I could compare what the race pace was like, the tire management was like. And that's when I felt in the best window because we were always, I think, very, uh, you know, let's say more closely matched than, than it seemed on TV. I don't know if we can call it a purple patch, but but those uh, points finishes in Hungary and Spa and the confidence that I guess came with that, did that help you as well? Yeah, I, I think naturally uh, it's, it's always going to be a, a nice boost. I think, um, you know, spoken about Hungary many times and, you know, for sure the first points of this uh, of F1 in my career, uh, the it was the first points of the team of that, of that season and uh, first points for a while, obviously. And it was a double points finish and obviously what those points kind of meant for obviously the Constructors' Championship in, in hindsight for what it did at the end of the year. It was uh, extremely great. And then obviously going into Spa after the summer break and what I would say is it was arguably my first real opportunity to drive the car in like proper wet conditions. I think looking back in, in uh, Austria, we had a wet qualifying, but that was, that was tricky. That was like obviously full wet tires, you know, couldn't really see much. And that was the first time I had driven an F1 car in the rain. And then we had Turkey, which that year with that tarmac, I mean, that wasn't driving in the rain. That was, 
that was driving. Ice rink. Yeah, exactly. That was something <laughs> else. This session in Spa and qualifying was the only other time it had rained that year. And obviously, I think I did, you know, obviously, George did an amazing job, clearly, with, with that front row start. Um, I got through the Q2, uh, and, and that was quite a good qualifying for me. And then, okay, we, we all know what happened with the race that didn't unfold. We benefited from a few penalties as well, and we got some points. So for sure, that was that was nice. But that did definitely, I think, bring a bit more confidence going into the next part of the season, where although there was no more points from my side, I think there could have been on a few occasions, if not for some, you know, let's say Monza had a very untimely safety car, and I, I guarantee I, I would have been in the points with without that. And yeah, it was just kind of riding some some uh, some momentum, let, let's say. So that that's when I felt the best and then obviously coming into this year was kind of hoping to carry that uh, but then it was just clear very early on with the the feedback and the kind of feelings I was getting from the car that it was just going to be a bit more of a struggle and kind of a bit of a reset. And you've already talked about the narrow operating window of this year's car yet I'm going to put it to you that one of your best qualities of your career in Formula One was Silverstone this year when you qualified 10th. Yeah, in uh, the wet, in a car with a very small window, or does the window get wider in the wet? I think, in a way, it's fair to say the window gets maybe slightly wider in the wet. Our car, uh, you know, because people watching from the outside, we do naturally seem to be better in the rain than in the dry. Clearly, I mean, we've gotten some pretty good results that exceed the expectations of, of our dry performing car. But our car doesn't become better in, in the wet all of a sudden. You know, a, a very difficult car to drive in the in the dry is still a very difficult car to drive in the wet, and. and and arguably, I find all of the characteristics that make the car so difficult to drive in the dry are amplified in, in the way. And you can say that's the same for, for everybody. So it is still very tricky, but let's say it does create more opportunity because there's so many more variables. Is you know that the, the tires is, is everything. Is how you get the tires to to work, and whether you can actually switch them on and get them to work. So I think the difference between sometimes us, you know, having an amazing result in the wet and outperforming cars that we shouldn't be outperforming. It's obviously a combination of us doing a great job, obviously the drivers doing a great job and, and getting a good lap in, and maybe the other teams not getting it spot on uh, as well. So, I mean, I, I could say that's, you know, that was the case for probably Silverstone that, you know, getting to the Q3 was, was amazing. But in reality, that weekend I was, I didn't even have the upgrade that weekend. I was still in the 10th slowest car. And I finished ahead of nine cars that should have been really ahead of me. But there was just so many other factors at play. There's also a bit of luck. There's always a bit of luck with when the rain comes and whatnot. But that was obviously quite a cool experience. And I mean, obviously, if we jump ahead a few weeks to Budapest, which although was not in a qualifying or race uh, session, but you know that we, as a team, we were one three in, in practice in uh, in Budapest in the wet. For me, that was a, a a very clear example as well as us doing something you know clearly great with with the car and obviously for sure as drivers because we still have to, have, have to drive the car around. But you know when I'd watch the onboards back of of other cars. And I'd watch the onboards of a top team and I could say, well, they, for one, they look like they actually have less grip than, than we do. But you would think, well, how is that possible? They have, you know, hundreds of points more, more downforce than we do. You know, they should be able to switch the tires on and whatnot. But there is, you know, say that window does widen and it does create more opportunities. And the thing about that one in particular, you know, everyone was on track at the same time. So it wasn't a, well, it's free practice. We're not going to, we're not going to drive, drive the car. We don't want to damage it before qualifying. I mean, everyone was on track at the exact same time trying to there's maybe two cars who were not on track so it was a legitimate thing you know realistically if it wasn't the qualifying again you never know what people are doing or what doing our fuel loads or engine modes but with that performance i think it would have been safe to say we would have not easily but it would have been very 
safe assumption that we would have gotten through the Q3 for sure. So it, it was obviously interesting and in a way puzzling to see these discrepancies of, you know, why are we so much more competitive sometimes in the wet than we are in the dry? And sometimes we are just not competitive in the wet as well. I mean, that's, that, that, that's, that's also the case, but more, more uh, rarely. So it's, uh, it's an interesting one. How do you think you've changed as a driver in the last three years? I think the uh, biggest thing that I know I could take, which for sure is, is not at a point where I said, okay, that's, that's enough, you know, you're, you're, you're good enough there. But I think one thing that, that I can say that for sure has made me a better driver is having to drive a difficult car for three years. Um, it, it, little... it does make you a more robust driver. It, it does. Is there a little bit of you that would just love to drive this year's Red Bull, for example, just to see what you've been missing? I mean, uh, for sure I would be lying if I, <laughs> I think any driver would be lying if they said they didn't want to drive the, the top car, but it obviously would be, let's say, I would jump at the opportunity to just drive a car that's competitive enough to just be in the midfield fight consistently. Because, uh, you know, obviously we have been able to fight with cars every now and then, maybe that's just for a few laps. Maybe that's not every race. It's only a handful of races. And again, that's just the reality of the situation we're in. But just to at least be in the fight with, with the midfield more consistently. I mean, obviously, the three teams ahead of us is, is us, Haas, Alfa Tori, and Aston Martin, I believe. And then there's quite a gap to, to the next ones. You know, some races, they're, they're, you know, they're way out of the points fight. Some races, they're, they're in it. But they're kind of always around a, this similar cars racing. And just that, that aspect, I would... You know, I would have loved to experience more in, in F1 because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a racer. I love to race. Uh, and that's, you know, for sure something that I haven't had, unfortunately, the opportunity to do do so much, you know, partly from me not being able to get as, as much out of the car. But irrespective of that, the car has just not always been capable of that. So it's, um, yeah, that's one of the things I'll, I will have been a bit disappointed to not get the opportunity to. I think every driver for sure will say they want, they never had a car to finish on the podium or to win. But just to at least be in more of that competitive fight, you know, that would have been at least a, a nice first step for me. <laughs> what about Williams? You've been there, you know, when it was run by Claire and owned by the family. You've been through the transition to Doralton. How, how has Williams changed under Doralton's ownership? Yeah, it, it really has changed uh, quite a lot and still continuing to change. And, 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 and I think it will st still continue to be changed for, for the coming um, years. Uh, you know, when I joined the team, obviously, so first year 2020, it was not a, a normal year. And let's say I never really got to fully ex get the true experience of, of what everything was like under the ownership and management of, of the, the Williams family. I mean, for sure, the beginning of the year, the preseason in 2020, the factory, the preparations. But, you know, there was so much that was that was new to me and I was learning. I was just kind of focusing on my my job and my role and just to try and be as prepared as possible. Then obviously COVID hit and, you know, let's say everything at the factory, like all that changed, you know, I was only within a specific part with my engineers, you know, we weren't mixing with the other people, obviously, you know, there wasn't, the offices were, were completely empty for, for the most part. So let's say how things were truly run uh, back then, I, I can honestly say I never got to fully see that and experience that. But obviously with, with the transition, with Doralton taking over, you know, there started to be for sure quite a lot of big changes, you know, structural changes, uh, management changes, new people coming in, a lot of people leaving or, or being replaced. I mean, it's just the reality of what happens sometimes with, with new ownership. Um, and, and yeah, there's been a lot of, it's been a very long process and a very long journey, unfortunately, a very slow one. But I think that's, again, in F1, so many things take time. 
Uh, it would be great if we could say, well, this is a problem, you know, within a week, fix it, but it's, it's, it's not always the case. And it's been a continuing journey of trying to improve that. So, you know, uh, obviously with Yost coming in, I think it's been great being able to, to work with him. I've always had a, a very nice open dialogue with him and, and him uh, likewise back to me about, let's say me and, and my performances as well, the team, you know, where, where he sees they need to improve and as well me giving my feedback on, you know, I think this still needs to change, this needs to improve if the team really wants to take the next step up. So there is still a lot of changes. It is still a very long process. I think coming from the position the team was in, it would have been, let's say, very naive to say, okay, in, in three years we want to be you know, top five in the championship or something like that because we really were starting from a, a very weak point. Um, but it's, yeah, it's been a constant evolution. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm a bit disappointed that I won't be able to continue along with that journey because... I do have confidence and I do think they will continue to make steps, whether that's going to start with a big step next year or still very small incremental steps. I think they will get closer to the fight. Uh, and for sure, it's disappointing to not be along for that journey, especially having been, you know, three years with them when it's been arguably the most <laughs> difficult. There's no doubt that you've had very good teammates. Do you feel the team has been loaded a little bit more in their direction than yours? The reason I ask that is we had... Jan Magnussen on the show last week, and he was saying that when he was Rubens Barrichello's teammate at Stewart, in hindsight, he really wished he'd shouted a bit louder because he felt the whole focus was on Rubens's car. Is there an element of that with you? It's, it's a tricky one because let's say, uh, I mean, in the past, let's say if I speak specifically about my time with George, um, and, and wouldn't necessarily say that, I, I think it's, you know, I could safely say that I think the team always felt that George was the reference, which I think is, is fair enough, because in reality, I could say he, he was. He was the reference. He was on average quicker than me in qualifying and more often than not finishing ahead in the race. So, you know, he was the one, the one that I had to try and match or, or, or try to beat. But I, I didn't necessarily feel that there was ever any favoritism in terms of, you know, oh, I was going to say well, in the first two years, there wasn't really a lot of <laughs> big and a consistent flow of upgrades and parts coming. So it's not that it was always, you know, okay, everything on George. No, we would, uh, if there was only certain parts available uh, and only in a certain amount of quantity, we'd alternate them on a race-by-race -race basis. I think every team does that. Uh, coming into this year, again, for the most part, I mean, I could say a bit the same thing that, although it was not clear exactly where we were going to be as a team and obviously how I was, how Alex and I were going to stack up against each other, he clearly seemed much more comfortable and to be the quicker one. So I think at some point as well, the focus did maybe shift to him being the, as the reference, which is, was fair enough. I mean, I, I really, really struggled at, at, uh, at a lot of points. You know, there, there was, you know, some, some conversations and sometimes where, again, the position we were in, which I you know I accepted it as, as, as well is when there was only limited parts available, whether it was, whether it wasn't even a potentially what you would say an upgrade, maybe it was just a weight saving parts, which is still lap time. You know, as Alex had the best chance of scoring points, they were going on Alex's car and let's say they wouldn't necessarily rotate, <laughs> which in, in a way is not a nice position to be in. But at the same time, I could say, well, if those parts were on my car, it's not necessarily that I would have been finishing ahead of him. And maybe I would have been slightly closer, but I wouldn't have been, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been the difference between me finishing ahead of him and being okay. Well, you see, now I'm the reference driver type thing. That I, I can honestly say because he was just further ahead of me at that point. But there was often times when, you know, there was obviously big differences between the cars. I think the most noticeable one is one he had obviously the upgrade for two races and I didn't, which 
again, that's just the reality of, of, of the, the team wasn't able to produce um, two, not, well, the thing is it's not even two full sets because you need enough for backup. So it's really three or four full sets of the upgrade. But that I think was, let's say a more outwardly communicated one, but going back towards the beginning of the year, like, you know, I could give one race, for example, where, um, again, I won't say what the difference in the cars were, but in, in Miami, you know, I had a car that on paper was four or five tenths a lap slower for, for various reasons. Uh, and I think in qualifying, I was only two hundredths behind them. So in reality, I, I, I beat Alex in, in that qualifying. Obviously, it's not outwardly uh, communicated to, to everyone, but there has been a lot of instances where, yeah, for, for little things, you know, again, like I said, whether it be weight saving parts or a new development part to try, it's, it's not always alternated, but that's not, you know, I can sit here honestly and say, that's not the difference of why I'm sitting where I am now. It's, you know, ultimately I still struggled to get on top of the car and that's the reality of it. And the, the position of the team being that we were in, if there was a chance to score points, you know, the difference between me having an extra 10th at various points and Alex having an extra 10th, it was obviously more realistic that he was going to get points and, and not me. <laughs> Which of those two guys has impressed you the most, George Russell or Alex Albon? It's honestly a very tough one for me to distinguish because prior to this year, I would have said, uh, well, I obviously would have said 100% without a, out of doubt that, you know, George was the, the best teammate and the fastest teammate I've driven with him, and especially in qualifying. I think that goes without saying he just always, you know, got it right. He very rarely made a mistake or, or had an off or had an off day in qualifying, and he always kind of got close to the, to the maximum out of it. And the reason why I find it difficult to compare the two as you could say, well, the gap to Alex this year has been relatively much bigger than the gap to George, but I know I felt much less comfortable with this year's car and I'm not able to get the most out of the car or arguably myself this year relative to, to last year. So let's say I felt I was performing much better last year and was close, very close to George. This year, I don't feel I'm, I have been able to perform as well. And obviously the gap is is much bigger. So it's because it's not a like for like situation because the car is so different, requires something completely different. It's, it, it is tricky to say, but in a way from what I felt with the cars, again, because I've been teammates with Alex before in Formula 2. So, so, so I, I knew he was, you know, as soon as I felt the way the car was and like, you know, after the test, the, the, maybe the first two races and like, okay, this is, this is the way the car is going to be. I already knew Alex was going to have less of a problem with it because I, I knew the way he liked to drive. I knew his driving style. I knew his strengths. I knew his weaknesses. And, I, and again, I would still arguably be, say that George would have had less issues with it too. But let's say this year's car is just far more <laughs> extreme in the difficulties I've been having with it uh, and to get on top of than, than the previous years. So I, I guess to go back to the question, <laughs> I, I, I can't really say one or the other because it's, been, it's just been a completely different different scenario has alex evolved and developed as a driver from when you were in formula two together 100 percent, he has and, and he would even say 100 percent, he has i think his experience in, in f1 and different teams for sure has has helped him um and you know he's i think and i think he's spoken in the media about it quite quite a lot but i think even his year on the sidelines uh with red bull as i mean in a way arguably contributed in, in, in a different way to his development as a driver just because Obviously, he was able to have a different perspective of it. So, I mean, even I could say I'm, I for sure evolved a lot as a driver since 2019. I mean, I would, I, I hope I would have become a better driver since then. I mean, I probably would have struggled more if I jumped into this car from, from 2019. Um, 
which is still not still not great because it's still not not uh, where I wanted to be. But uh, you know, for sure, year on year, everyone's learning, and I think he definitely says he's become a more robust driver. Just one more teammate I did want to ask you about, and that's Nick DeVries, Monza. How impressed were you by him? And equally, how difficult a weekend was that for you? Because I think for us observing in the paddock, it certainly was billed as a bit of a shootout between the two of you. And how difficult was that for you? I mean, in reality, I never really saw it as as, as a shootout, to be honest. Um, I mean, up until, uh, let's say, the whole Friday with Alex driving, I mean, I was still massively struggling for with, with the same kind of issues that I've been, been struggling with all year. And then, yeah, obviously Saturday morning we found out, I guess most of the team all found out together, but obviously then Nick was going to be driving. And, you know, for sure I'd be lying if I didn't say, well, you know, I have everything to lose here and, and, and Nick has everything to gain. I mean, that's, I think, the, the reality of it because if in the end if Nick ends up being a second or half a second off me, well, no one's going to think anything of it. And the closer he is or finishing ahead of me, then it's only going to it's only going to look uh, better for him. But no, I mean, I was extremely impressed with what Nick did. I mean, I have a, a lot of respect for him. I mean, obviously, he uh, he was the one who beat me in the championship in, in Formula 2 in, in 2019. He's obviously a Formula E champion uh, and is an extremely quick driver. And for sure, I, I mean, I, I think I even said in 2019 that he definitely deserved a shot to be be on the grid. So for sure, I'm very happy for him that he's, he's found that. Um, but yeah, the, the weekend as a whole, I mean, it was kind of one of those where everything went wrong for me for for many reasons i mean a lot of stuff in in my control some some out of my control and then it just kind of made everything seem that that bit worse so like for example in qualifying i didn't end up doing my lap on my second set of tires because i ended up blocking in the first corner so again my mistake driver error but again we were having issues with the brakes the whole the whole weekend and on a track like that so i didn't i didn't get a lap in and in the end, we were 100 step difference between him getting through the Q2 and, and and me not. So again, that was that was quite frustrating. And then the race, obviously, we both started at the front. We both benefited from a lot of penalties. And arguably, that was the track where we probably had the most relative competitiveness just because of our car's, I'd say, I'm not going to say our car's strengths because... Uh, we are very quick in the straight line, but the reason we are very quick in the straight line is because we don't make a lot of downforce. That's that's the reality of it. I mean, you can see it the other way, but that downforce does something in the corners, right? It's it's, it's lap time. So that was always going to be the track where we were going to have the best shot at getting another points finish, uh, second to, let's say, Spa, where, where Alex did. And yeah, we both benefited from uh, a lot of uh, penalties, which was great. And as I was kind of mentioning earlier, when we do get points, it's we are we get in a good position and we and we just hold on. We you know we don't move forward. We hold on. And I went backwards at the start right away. I just got very unlucky. I got sandwiched between a few cars and tried to avoid some front wing damage. And I dropped back like five six positions. And from then my race was was over. I was never going to be able to again overtake cars and then go back into the into the points. And obviously Nick did a, a fantastic job. He had a, a clean start, which I think was very difficult to do in these cars in, in your first race and then he, yeah he managed the tires well he did an amazing race and he I guess he ended up finishing pretty much exactly where and he lost one one position there was obviously some quick cars coming through he kind of finished where where he started uh, so that is how I expected the race to go for let's say both of us or at least one of us because again realistically it's not very often you get both cars uh, both Williams finishing in the points uh, so yeah it was extremely impressive because you know it's 
you know, the car, as I said, relatively was more competitive there, but still, as I said, a difficult car to drive. You know, I, I think I saw on um, social media, but like afterwards, like I was obviously frustrated with my own race and people kind of misinterpreting like what, what I was saying. Like, you know, I'm obviously frustrated with, with my own race and I'm obviously getting a microphone stuck in my face right after, which no, no one really uh, appreciates. And I was obviously, let's say, being a bit annoyed with the issues we were having to deal with, with, with the car. And I think people mistook a lot my uh, frustration the wrong way for how just poor my own race was. But for sure, as I said, going back to what Nick did and accomplished our race, I think it was yeah extremely impressive. I remember following you into the circuit that day. I got in very early on race morning. And there was, I was like, that's Nicky ahead of me. Do you always get into the track really early? I just remember being quite struck by the time that you got in at Monza. Um, we are always I'm guessing of, we were half always, eight. Yeah, I mean, we're always kind of in at the same intervals. I, I think on race day, Williams uh, drivers are probably always in the earliest. Um, oh, I see. It's for it, meetings. It, it, Is that it, where you're... It's, oh, a function, okay. it's a function of the schedule of how we have and how we structure our, our meetings, not, not media stuff, because if it was media stuff, we'd... But th that, that's another story with, where Alex and I always... I think it's fair to say that Williams don't get the most preferential time slots. But most of the time, we're always either the first ones doing a media thing and having to go to the track extremely early or one of the last ones and have to stay at the track extremely late. A good example, in Monza, for example, I think this was on Saturday, Alex and I were heading to the track for F1 media duties and George was still sitting there in his pajamas having breakfast and he's like, I'm not going to the track for another two hours, guys. He's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what you get for graduating up to a top team and getting the, uh, the, the better time slots. <laughs> Nikki, there is uh, another couple of topics I wanted to talk to you about. And one of them was Abu Dhabi 2021. Of course, we all know it was a hugely controversial race for many reasons. Your crash triggered the safety car. Now, all racing drivers crash. Uh, but there was a, this was a very different experience for you. Can you talk us through the aftermath of what happened there? You know, obviously the incident happened. I, I was battling with Mick for whatever position way out of the points. But again, that doesn't, that, that's really besides the point. And I think that was one of my, let's say, one of the strong points that I wanted to, to hammer home to all the racing fans or people who are watching that is like, well, in reality, it doesn't matter if I'm racing for P20, P19 points or, or the podium. I mean, on that day, our car was, you know, only good enough to be racing in those positions. So, you know, if I'm going to be racing, I'm, if I'm not going to be racing and trying to get every little thing, well, then, you know, let's say 80% of the races, Williams might as well not show up to the races because we're not racing for, for points most of the time. So that's obviously uh, a very silly attitude to have, I mean, but that's, let's say just the, you know, the perception of, of the public. And I wouldn't say the true motorsport fans, it's just the people who don't really know much about racing. Um, but there was obviously that aspect. And yeah, I, I, I crashed, I made a driver error, driver mistake, as, as everyone does every now and then. And uh, yeah, obviously caused a safety car. We know what ended up happening that after that with the, the race outcome and the, the let's say, not following the correct uh, procedures of, of the safety car protocol and whatnot. But then, yeah, obviously the aftermath was definitely not a nice one. Obviously, again, I've, I've, I've spoken about it. I kind of wrote about it in, in my, my statement. And again, that's just the ugly side of, of social media nowadays. I mean, it's, it is, I don't think it has anything really to do with sport. I mean, in this case, it is sport. But let's say anyone in, in the public eye, whether it be any other kind of famous person, arts, movie stars, this case, obviously sports. In this case, it was very obviously a high-profile incident because of the outcome of what ended up happening. It, it wasn't just a race at the beginning of the year. It was obviously something at the end of the year with the championship battle. Obviously, tons of 
tensions and emotions for was like even fans because obviously you know it was a very exciting season i'm sure a lot of people were invested in it obviously not as much as the teams and drivers but uh and then yeah all, all that that happened afterwards yeah it just exposed a very not nice aspect of of social media and and uh you know what some people think is is okay which is clearly not okay so yeah i mean it was for sure not nice for for a few days but i kind of you know, got over it quite quickly. You know, I had a. Did, know, I mean, um, did you get over it? I was. How did it knock you? Well, I, I mean, on some, and I mean, obviously the season was done, so it's not like I felt like okay, well, I'm having to go back in the paddock next week or in two weeks' time, and I'm going to be asked about this. I'm bombarded about this. Uh, I'm still going to have to be in the paddock. I mean, I, I guess in a way, it probably wouldn't have been as extreme if there was another race coming because it still would have been, you know, the championship still would have gone on, if you will. But yeah, I mean, it, it was maybe two, three days where I, like, I was, two, no, two days where I was probably like, you know, I did take social media off my phone and then I kind of returned to it, uh, I guess, slowly, if you will. I mean, I just reinstalled the apps on my phone. And, you know, even, I, th I think at that point, you know, I obviously have PR people that, that tell me with my social media and whatnot and they have access to it. So I'm sure they were, you know, well, they said they were kind of, kind of trying to clean as much of it uh, as they could, as anyone would have in that situation. So I obviously heard a lot from them and obviously from family members who, who were still on social media afterwards of, you know, just how bad it was. I still saw when I returned to social media, all the kind of, let's say, online hate, abuse and, and, and whatnot. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's clear that, you know, that's never okay. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really matter what, what was at stake, especially that it's in reality. You know, I did nothing wrong. I mean, if I purposely crashed, I mean, that's a, that's a different story. But I was just doing my, my own race. And that's the reality of F1 where you could have, you know, 10 different races going on. It's because you're, you're basically racing in different categories. In a way, I was racing with the Haas. And um, yeah, I just, I just made a mistake, a driver error. I'm not concerned at that point about what's happening up at the front. How many laps are left is... Lewis in the lead is Max in the lead. Who's like I don't even know what's what's going on. I'm just in my my own race. But yeah, that's for that for me was in the past. It was it was very much in the past already coming into this season, and it was yeah just kind of about starting starting fresh really. Did it knock your confidence? I wouldn't say it knocked my confidence because you know what I can honestly say about this year, you know, because I've seen uh, I think Yost Yost has said uh, you know potentially that that's you know we're still carrying that a little bit coming in, into this year and maybe some other people have said that that as well but which I honestly don't think was the case there was other aspects to this year that obviously had a knock-on effect on my confidence and I think the fact that I was clearly struggling with the car the fact that I had some other incidents at the beginning of the year with this car that obviously doesn't help when you're obviously trying to build momentum you know you're struggling with the car and then I had I had an incident in well two incidents in, in Saudi which didn't help obviously the incident in Australian qualifying which was not my fault and it was not a, a driver error that I lost the car but it was still another crash that obviously caused big damage for sure those things don't help to build momentum and that kind of knocks the confidence a, li a little bit but I wasn't really carrying anything else from Abu Dhabi from the previous year. Did Lewis reach out to you after Abu Dhabi? Yeah, yes, he did. Yeah, he sent me. Uh, he sent. I think. I think it was. I think it was the day of the statement I uh, I put out because obviously you know that day was quite uh, still sticks out in my mind not because of Lewis messaging me but just obviously you know no it, it was a very positive thing thing to do and obviously that statement got a lot of uh tension and a lot of support from teams fans you know kind of everyone in the motorsport world in general and probably a lot of people outside uh, and yeah lewis did send me a message to reach out to me he i think as he said you know he was kind of detaching from the whole world of social media and whatnot himself you know he obviously had his own um, emotions to kind of deal with obviously what he was fighting with but yeah he did send me a very nice message you know fully in support i even had 
some messages from other, uh, let's say, top Mercedes team members that, that reached out uh, and all along with countless visible ones on social media from different team accounts, different drivers and, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, everyone who knows, everyone who's a true racing fan, everyone who knows the way racing is, I mean, and again, and I can still say this, I, I know I did. There was nothing that I did wrong and there was nothing wrong about uh, what was wrong about it was how it was obviously dealt with afterwards. I think that was clear and that obviously with the FIA uh, report, that that's clear as well. But again, it just highlights the world we live in, the amazing access. I say amazing access because it is amazing the access that that uh, fans have to uh, public figures because, again, it's not nothing to do with sport particularly. Again, that has a lot of benefits, but in this case, it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of negatives. Well, I, I massively admire you for the way you moved on. Now, talking of moving on, let's throw it forward. I think a lot of people listening to this are thinking, well, what's next for Nicholas Latifi? Tell us about the future. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm I'm keeping still all the options open and kind of just evaluating all the options in that in that sense. I think the it's it's clear that the most obvious route let's say what seems like the most obvious route to most fans and people from the outside is obviously making a switch to IndyCar. It's still formula cars. It's obviously uh, extremely top level racing. It's a very exciting series. I mean, I could say personally, it's the series I enjoy watching the most outside of F1. You know, when I'm not, when I, when I have an off weekend on F1, I enjoy watching the IndyCar races. I mean, it is obviously very exciting, close racing. It's spec racing, like a big formula two championship more advanced Formula 2 championship. But there, there is also other avenues as well. So, I mean, I haven't committed to anything. I mean, if I'm going off uh, a few reports from a week, a week or, or so ago, I've, I'm already committed and signed, uh, signed the deal, and, and that's what I'm doing. But that's, uh, that's oh, not cool. the case. Give us the exclusive. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> the exclusive, is, is, that's, that's not the case. It was, it was actually quite funny in, in Austin because so many people are just like fans, like saying, oh, congrats on the IndyCar deal. Congrats on the IndyCar deal. And uh, I mean, this is all just like in walking and passing. So on some stage, I'm like, well, I'm not going to say, oh, that's not true to everybody because it's just like, well, I can't really be bothered. It was, it was coming up so, so much. But uh, I haven't decided on, on, on anything yet. There's, there's options in different categories and, and whatnot. And Can I ask you this about IndyCar? If, and I know it's still an if, you were to make the switch, how do you feel about ovals? Obviously, being a Formula car driver racing in Europe, you, I guess you kind of get... Um, kind of get molded to the opinion that formula car racing on ovals is, is dangerous and for sure it is more dangerous than racing on street tracks or road tracks let's say and then for sure if i was to do ovals i would you know be aware that okay yeah this is obviously more dangerous i mean there obviously has been some very high profile incidents uh, but in recent years obviously the cars have taken massive steps up in safety as they always do just like formula one does if i was to do indycar i would I would want to do the ovals because I wouldn't want to take myself out of, you know, potential championship points and, and whatnot. And, you know, especially if I was to do it for multiple years, you know, if I didn't do ovals the first year, then then the second year I'm, I would be doing them, I'd still be, you know, having to learn and get on top of it, which let's say arguably when you're more in a position to fight for podiums and wins and championships, you're, you're still at a disadvantage for, for quite a few races. So I did have the opinion at, at some point that, yeah, they are very dangerous and, and unsafe in recent years less so but it's definitely something i would want to do i, I wouldn't want to do just the uh i think there's only four races now anyways that there's that there's ovals but i definitely want to do all the races are you clear in your mind that you want to race next year you wouldn't look at a third driver role in formula one for example i think the only way i would consider a third driver role is if i saw a realistic way to return to the grid in, in formula one which 
speaking bluntly and honestly, I, I don't see to be the case. Um, obviously, Alex did that last year, so it shows it's, it's possible. I, maybe, I mean, I can't think of any else off the top of my head of other drivers that have done that, but I think he was obviously in a in maybe a different situation with Red Bull. I mean, arguably Red Bull didn't need to replace him, and they even kind of said, "Well, it was a very hard decision. We still obviously valued him very highly. It's such that they kept him in in the fold, and he was still very much involved." I think it's great that he's back. Alex is back on the grid because I think he thoroughly deserved to be on the grid. I think, I, I, and I even messaged him when he when I saw the news how how uh, sorry and how bad I felt for him that he he wasn't on the grid anymore. But uh, me personally. I, you know, just to be a, a reserve driver without any clear path of making a return, it's probably not something I would want to do because let's say being a, a reserve driver is not what I see as my long-term <laughs> career. But at, at the same time, if if I can't find something that's suitable for me next year, I mean, whether that, that might potentially mean taking a year off to put together something better for the, the coming year. So I guess, like I said at the beginning, all, all the options are still open. I mean, I'm still still young, I'm still 27. You know, I do obviously feel I have uh, I have some things to offer. So that's not to say that I'm, you know, 100% I want to do IndyCar, 100% I want to do endurance racing, 100% I'm not racing uh, or, t- or taking a year off. It's not really much more, uh, many more juicy details to, to give. It's, it's still kind of undecided and uh, keeping the options open and just kind of wanting to end these last uh, two races off on a high. Well, look, best of luck with whatever comes next. It's been so wonderful just to talk through it all with you since you were last on the show. Um, how much are you going to miss Formula One? There's definitely uh, a lot of aspects of the, that I will miss. I mean, there's also a lot of aspects about it that I won't miss, let, let's say. I, I'm, I'm definitely not, and I don't feel one of those people who will be bitter about it and, and whatnot. I mean, in the end, I, I don't really have any regrets about how I how I went about my approach in Formula One and the work. I mean, I obviously would have hoped for, for, for much more. And I think that goes without saying, you know, there's always, oh, I wish I didn't make that mistake in that race or in the qualifying, if only I hooked up that lap. But these aren't regrets. These are just mistakes that with hindsight, every driver up and down the grid in history will, will say that. So because of that, I mean, I definitely don't think I'm going to feel bitter about it and I don't feel bitter about it that's the reality at the end of the day it was, it's a performance-based industry and I just didn't get enough consistent performances some in my control some things out of my control but that's motorsport that's that, that's that's the same for for everybody so what am I going to miss about Formula One I mean it, it's still in my opinion the pinnacle of racing I mean driving I, I mean although as I was speaking earlier in the podcast you know driving the Williams car is not the nicest car to drive. It's still a Formula One car. It's still the 10th quickest car in the world to drive, which let's say in the grand scheme of racing things is not great. But uh, obviously when you take a step back and with that perspective, it's it's not the, the worst thing. Working with the team and kind of just being, you know, I, I just, let's say not to say that I like the allure of being an F1 driver because arguably there's a lot of that stuff that I won't miss about all the the stuff that we kind of just see as distractions and and don't tell me the and, media and a bit stuff, nonsense, right? <laughs> like, like sitting here right here for the past forty five minutes speaking to you. Um, but but you know all of the this year, I think it goes without saying. You know, there's a lot of frustrations, a lot of uh, a lot of let's say hanging on to stress that you know I won't have to deal with probably. Uh, next, I mean, obviously, depending on what I decide with racing, obviously, still always going to be some of that. But you know, the the motivational aspect of you know knowing I'm showing up and kind of not in the fight, and you kind of 
you're kind of almost getting chopped down before you even start. I mean, that aspect I for sure won't miss. And that wasn't there the whole three years. I mean, it was probably definitely there more, you know, a few races into this year when it's the third year of that. Because again, the first two years are so like, okay, well, it's still Formula One. You still hope to, you know, improve with the team and, and whatnot. So there's aspects I will miss. There's aspects that I, that I won't miss. Yeah, I won't miss all the, the, the media stuff. <laughs> just, oh, come on. Just a waste of time. <laughs> but, oh, uh, well, yeah. Nicky, best of luck with what comes next. You'll be much missed. Don't be a stranger. Please come back into the paddock. I know lots of people would love to see you. Appreciate it. Thank you. I don't think you're the only driver who complains about the media bit of the job, Nicky. I think many of us listening to this will agree that Nicky appeared to find this chat cathartic. After three hard years at the top echelon, he wanted to get some things off his chest. And while he never got a car to challenge at the front, there were moments where he impressed a lot. His Q3 lap at Silverstone this year was one such occasion, and his work ethic was always 100%. Just before doing this interview, He'd been on a long run around the streets of Mexico City and you can't help wondering how much of a step he might have made over the winter had he stayed in Formula One. Nicky, thanks for your time and for your honesty and good luck in the final two races of 2022. Extract the maximum from the car and go out on a high. Now, what are your memories of Nicky? Were you at Silverstone this year to see him claim that Q3 slot? Or perhaps Hungary last year when he scored his first points in Formula One? Let me know by sending in your thoughts to me at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1B on the grid and I'll read out a handful of your comments at the end of next week's show. Which of course leads me on to what you sent in about Jan Magnussen after last week. Many of you enjoyed hearing from the Great Dane and you all respected his honesty. Let's start with this from Jack of a Trade. Loved the Jan Magnussen interview. I saw him at the Formula Ford Festival. I was 10-ish and he was amazing. Overtaking on the outside of Druids is an image that will stay with me forever. I was heartbroken. It didn't work out for him in Formula One and it was great to hear his story. Thanks for your message and you're not alone in being sad that it didn't work out for Jan in F1. And I love your story about him at Druids. He was such an opportunistic driver, wasn't he? And I just want to add, is there a better combination of corners anywhere in the world than Paddock Hill Bend and Druids at Brands Hatch? Next, let's hear from NYC Joe. What a legendary racing grandpa. Jan's giggles and his straightforward demeanor is so much like K-Mag. His enthusiasm to race with Kevin again puts a smile on my face and I'm wishing the Magnussons all the best in the Gulf 12 hours. Thanks, Joe. You're right, Jan is so proud of Kevin and Kevin has no doubt benefited from his advice. I think they can win the Gulf 12 hours in that Ferrari. Finally, let's hear from Philip Pegler. What a wonderful conversation with Jan. It was so refreshing to hear such an authentic and genuine character who has so many incredible career achievements. It was also lovely to hear him talk about Kevin and how obviously proud he is of him. Thanks for getting in contact, Philip. And Jan is authentic and genuine, and he can be so proud of his own racing career, even though it didn't work out in Formula One. We'll leave it there for messages this week, but please remember to get in contact about Nikki Latifi in time for next week's show. And if you'd like something else to listen to, why not check out our interviews with Alex Albon, Nick DeVries, George Russell, and Williams team boss, Jos Capito. There are links to those episodes in the description for this one and hundreds more in our back catalogue. Ratings and reviews are very welcome. We read them all. 
and make sure you're following the podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>